Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I'm so happy to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. Well, today's show will focus on Latino genealogy and beyond with an examination of the historical and genealogical resources available to trace your Puerto Rican ancestors. My guest is Dr. Ellen Fernandez-Sacco, and she is an independent scholar with over 14 years of experience as a genealogy. An expert in Puerto Rican genealogy, she works to increase access to information on enslaved and indigenous ancestors. She is past president of the California Genealogical Society and a panelist on Black Progen Live. Dr. Fernandez Sacco seeks to expand knowledge of connections to the Caribbean through her blog. Her most recent post on Juan De La Rosso uses various resources to reconstruct context and the families connected to an enslaved ancestor to make their networks more visible. So let me give a warm welcome to Dr. Fernandez Sacco to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Ellen. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be on the well, show. Th- well, I am so happy to have you on the show. And this is such an a interesting topic. In fact, when I was reading your Latino and genealogy blog post, I was struck by a statement in which you mentioned that you have explored a journey of discovery through enslavement, migration, self-liberation, and freedom. So tell us, why did you decide to, to focus on creating this Latino genealogy and beyond blog? Um, some of my motivation is really kind of very basic, and I think that a lot of us have this um, desire to work against erasure and denial of, of a presence. Um, 
over the years, as I've been looking at how do I fit my location, my family's location, the people that I know, other 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 people who are from uh, places in the Caribbean, from you know, we'll, I'll talk about you know empire in a minute. Um, how do I how do I encompass that? You know, like my family didn't come here through Ellis Island. Um, they certainly didn't come and, and colonize Massachusetts. Uh, where, where do, what do I do with this? You know, because when I look at a, you know, when I define American genealogy, uh, Puerto Rican genealogy isn't part of that. Uh, Caribbean genealogy isn't necessarily part of that. I think that's changing now, and I think that's changing as people stop. Um, I think we can't really silo information and these categories of nation have become kind of. Um, not really helpful when you're talking about people who are traveling across their vast uh, distances and across place and time to build families in different locations and also um, it, under very under very difficult conditions. So, I mean, I'm just talking very broadly. So when I use Latino, I'm not trying to say, hey, you know, we all listen to salsa or something like that. <laughs> I'm really talking about something much more geographic and fundamental in the sense of, you know, there's the Caribbean Basin. Um, when I look at my island, you know, when I look at Puerto Rico, Borinquen, I mean, uh, if I look at my ancestry DNA results, it doesn't go off the island. Okay, it's really funny. It's like got all these countries in the DNA, but I don't, nothing that links me directly back. But it doesn't matter because none of those connections need to be immediate. You know, we, we have these... Um, we're, we are people caught in the flows of empire, a lot of us, whether it's the American empire, whether it's the remains of the Spanish empire, the Portuguese empire. And kind of understanding those stories, I think, uh, and those networks and those trade networks uh, is a lot better than thinking of it as like a balloon of like, oh, hey, I'm Spanish or, or I'm Italian or I'm, uh, you know, it, it's much more porous, it's much more, uh, diasporic. It's, it's much more, um, you know, inclusive. And that's not to erase the specificity of anybody's experience. You know, it's mm-hmm. just that there's a lot of locations that, you know, connect us. Yes, so when you say, I mean, there are a lot of locations that connect us, talk about, you know, what are some of the challenges and then what are some of the opportunities that an individual will face when they are engaged in, in searching for their Latino ancestral roots? Um, well, I guess the challenges is going to be the time and place. I mean, some people have a desire to, like, you know, find that village and that their ancestor came from, but actually what I find a lot of times is if you look at your DNA results, you're not really going to get there ever because, you know, you have, you know, a, another hundred people that are right there or that, that have other additional connections, and the story is, is going away from those kind of patriarchal lines, I'm feeling. At least for me, what I want to understand is kind of a context why things turn out a certain way and um, um, and, and you know and the, what, what those questions are for, for when you're doing those family histories you know uh, there, there are challenges in terms of 
uh, that can be surmounted by setting up timelines and figuring out where where your ancestors wound up at certain time periods, working with other people and working collaboratively to do that. Uh, some of the, um, you know, some of the other things to think about is the way people are innovatively flipping uh, archives, in a sense, you know, where, where uh, you know, you're using the institution that holds you and you're using those details to further your own family history to make that, to make some more details. Um, possible to work with. Um, if I'm, I'm, I know I'm kind of like kind of kind of general, but if you want to bring me back to more specific, I'm fine with that. <laughs> well, I do have two questions coming out of the chat already. So, sure. when you conduct your uh, Puerto Rican uh, genealogy, are you looking for your Puerto Rican mm-hmm. ancestry? Is it the same as we would African-American ancestry or European ancestry? Are we looking at the same records? So give us, uh, help us understand what we need to do. You know, it really depends. It's going to depend on what that family history kind of looks like from what you can gather. Um, There are are people that... um, you know, if your family has inherited property and then you have the disposition of those property records, their property records, or um, it, it, and, and sometimes you do look at naturalizations, you do look at the um, volumes by Estella Cifa de Libriel were like the first ones that came out that kind of listed all the people who migrated at a certain time that she could get a hold of. Um, so there are there are indexes, there are there are things that are the same, like uh, working with African American genealogy, because to understand how institution of slavery works, um, there's a lot of people have done that kind of research already, and there is research done in the Caribbean uh, on that. And there's a lot to be said for comparing that, uh, for comparing those kinds of techniques. Um, you know, to read broadly also, to not just look at the tree and get stumped on, gee, you know, this, um, you know, this ancestor seems to arrive here from Jamaica or St. Croix, you know, at this moment, and like, how am I going to, how am I going to get a handle on that? Well, then you look at a local history, you start looking at the, um, you start looking at whatever records that are available that's connected with those events. Um, if, if, you know that you have a slave, and if you're descended from an enslaved person, then you're using really like oral history and building out from there so you can kind of then cross-reference whatever's in that history and kind of unpack it if, in case the story's compressed over time, unpack that so that you could get, you can, you can build that out. Um, there's no, there's so many different ways to, to work, you know. And um, and I think because of social media, also that it's been it's been it's been taking off quite a bit. So social media has had a role to play in in encouraging and motivating people to conduct their Latino genealogy. And what you're saying is social media also has provided them with additional resources. Yes, I think that, well, familial resources. I mean, I think that's one huge reason that people are on Facebook, for instance. You know, uh, if they can locate family, a lot of times there are a lot of families who are who are on 
something like Facebook or think about where message boards were 10 years ago on Ancestry to what we have now, you know, so you have networks online and portals and things like that. And I think that's kind of what's coming for, you know, what I'm calling Latino genealogy more those kinds of resources. Right. Now you mentioned earlier when you said something about if you're searching for your enslaved ancestors and and you may want to get an oral history. But let's take for a moment the uh, case study you posted on your website about Juan Del Rosso. Give us an Mm -hmm. idea of what you uncovered about Juan and and take us through that journey of helping us understand how you could piece together his genealogy or what was going on in that entire community. Um well I was I was doing some research in like Aceta Oficial de Puerto Rico, which is a um a newspaper, the official newspaper of Puerto Rico. And um it's a governmental uh it's a government it's a government issue, and it will have a variety of what they call anuncios, announcements, elections, um, even the fines for people uh, violating local ordinances can appear in there. And so it's a kind of almost like social regulation has a purpose of that as well. I was really surprised. I thought like I would put in different terms relating to slavery to see what would come up. And then I also put in, you know, MOCA because it's um, just to see what, how that would come up in the listing. And I came up with this, uh, this runaway, what was a runaway slave ad or um, notice of self-emancipation that appeared in the newspaper in 1840, um, in 1841. So I was kind of really surprised because I, I haven't really seen this, this tied to this town before. It's, so it's usually like it's in San Juan or more or Ponce or Yauco or other, you know, really much more population-dense areas. So as I read the, the ad, I was really intrigued because I know Barrio Capa. In fact, I have cousins that live there today. Um, I, I, I visited the area, know, know what that's like. And that the Gonzalez family is, is a, one of the family groups that is in that area. So um, I was really intrigued, and I looked at my database, which I, I had people in there that I would then connect later, and she happened to be in there. And I started to look at her family, and then I started to look at, at him. And I, there is a, a history of Mocha by um, Antonio Nieves Mendez, which has indexes in the back that I then used to search for information. So I, I looked at this as kind of like I, I'm not a direct descendant of Juan de la Rosa. Juan de la Rosa left Mocha, but I'm really curious, like, well, what can I learn about this man just based on this, on, on the information here? And then I just kept pulling on that uh, to, keep, to keep looking, and there are different record sets that you can use to compare. There's an 18 For example, what record sets? Yes. What record okay, set would you I look was, at? Okay, so like in 1826, they, uh, there was a, the Reglamento de Esclavos was passed, so which is like kind of the version of uh, the codes law, the black codes that you would have, you know, under the French Empire, people know, 
you know, the same kind of set of laws. So this was like 16 chapters, and, and it outlines everything. And one of the things that come out of this is that the Spanish government orders the census of the enslaved people on the island so that they could, have, they could get a handle on, on the people that are out there. So then they go and they, um, they do an inventory, but the inventory with names, ages, uh, and it doesn't have the details later, but that becomes a record set that then you can use. The laws themselves, um, the regulations, you can use to understand the context of uh, what Juan de la Rosa lived with, his age is there, what happens when there's a child, or what happens with the mother, what happens to life cycle. Because people are living through two different time cycles. They're living through the cycle of the master, and they're living through the cycle of, 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 of their own lives. And, um, and so there are going to be records tied to that, parish records. So people are not anonymous. They don't appear like just as necessarily numeric. There are numeric censuses taken, but there are also sources that list, that list people, and will list, uh, like the parish records would be another set. Uh, one problem comes a little later because the, they would separate the books out on the basis of race. So you would have a libro de blancos and you would have a libro de pandos y negros or a libro de pandos y esclavos, which later becomes a libro de uh, blancos y pandos. And then, you know, they just give up on the subdivisions. Uh, but every time those changes come in the record sets, it's because an ordinance, because a law comes out because of that. And then the other thing is what's on the other side of those laws, you know, Another way to read them is, is a tremendous amount of fear because of the potential of people to, um, to rise up and to rebel. So one of the things, for instance, that's mentioned in the advertisement is the route that, that he's on uh, and, and learning that, you know, they would disseminate this in the newspaper. This would get communicated to other people. But in actuality, what, what actually is the reach of that? of that. What is the reach of the reglamentos? I have no questions about it because it's 16 chapters, but you have very low literacy rate on the island, so then there's a question mark in terms of how, how these things get interpreted. But these are, these are documents you can work with. You can pull them from uh, the, uh, the Internet Archive. There's a tremendous number of resources. There are a quite number of university and colleges that have digitized some of these books from the 1860s and mid-19th century that do outline these, this and then um, the companion books. And then sometimes some of these things are complemented by the literature on medicine in the South, for instance. It's not far. People from Puerto Rico traveled to um, Louisiana. There were connections to that, the connections to Cuba, connections people who were educated, the people who were the children of the, uh, the well-to-do slaves. Uh, holders, plantation owners uh, went to Spain to study. You know, if you come back and you study medicine, I'm sure that's going to serve more than just treating um, citizenry, you know. So there's, there, there, there's information, there's sources there. It's just trying to get a lot of, um, trying to see how you can use a series of, of local history. Uh, local record sets and different kinds of record sets to kind of fill out a picture of, this, of a life. So, well, it also sounds timing. like you have to, yeah, also have to understand the historical context 
in which right. the records are being created. Now, we have a question here. Um, you know, you mentioned the fact that the black codes that you looked at in 1826 has 16 chapters. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. with that information, you understood that you could find names of enslaved individuals. But the question is, is is it the enslaved black, is it called that, or is it enslaved Puerto Ricans? I mean, help us understand just how the various groups are defined because we know that you, when you think of somebody from Puerto Rico, you may say, wait a minute, they have Taino, they have African American, they have European. Right. Are all of these records right. separate or are they one set of records? They it's it's well it's going to depend on what you well it actually is more or less one set of records we're dealing with you know an administrative structure that then has you know follows certain rules to have uh to keep track of of individuals that that's one thing so you know you have like protocolo notariales and through those which are notarial records and through those you can track individuals through families being sold, being, um, you know, people buying their freedom, uh, uh, you know, who they went to, who they were sold to. So there's a lot of details there, but that's, that's, that's a whole other kettle of fish to work with the notarial documents. Some of the uh, parish documents reflect these relationships too. Uh, can I just, okay, so there's, there's the issue of the colorism. Colorism, I, it's, it's just fancy racism in a way. Um, it's racism by a thousand names. Um, so you have these categories. In, in Mexico, you, you may have seen the Casa paintings, where there's like 74 categories of colors. It's like they've been mapped out. If, if um, you know, if, if, if it's a white and a black mix, if you get a, you get a, a mulatto or a zambo. You know, and then you have like this permutation of names. They didn't really have that. And that in Mexico, that was that circulated, but in, in Puerto Rico it was much more local. And also the Spanish government had a political interest in having the names changed on people in terms of them as a people. You don't want to give people recognition of their, you know, if, if, if they were part of a sovereign nation, if they were part of a, of a group that had its own government. You, don't, you know, that gets taken away with enslavement. And so then what do we wind up with? And like what I, you know, what I like to say is, you know, they flattened us into colors. So then they become these certain colors. And actually, if you look at a term like mulatto, uh, if you look at Jack Forbes, you know, Africans and Native Americans, the term mulatto comes out in like 1530. And it, and it refers to a mix of Native Americans and Africans because people were already, you know, mixing from the get-go, and communities of Maroons were created from the get-go, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but thinking of people separate and keeping them in these little categories of color and then putting sets of rules according to that. But then, it, then the other thing is that the flexibility of the Spanish system was that you could, you could buy your whiteness if you, during the 19th century. You would pay a fee if you were a well-to-do family of color you pay a fee and then they would redact the documents and then you would become a white person and then you could marry somebody of your equal social status. 
So it really depends also what time period we're talking about and when. Um, there's there's a lot that can be re, there's a lot that can be reconstructed. I'm just saying that people. I'm not saying that you just you know put a couple of things together and there you are. But you know we're, look, slavery ended in Puerto Rico in 17, 1873, and pe- what people need to realize is like despite Barracuda, people were being sold up to the day that the that the statutes passed for emancipation in Puerto Rico. And then on top of it, they had wow. to work three years without any, without any pay for their former masters. And on top of it, people were indemnified. So if anybody died on the way, they would get some payment. So that was part wow. of the reason why some of these records that exist. Oh, it's, okay. It's, it's okay. a very, it's an uncomfortable truth, but we see this. We know this from Georgetown. You know, we see this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. When we can recognize these kinds of patterns, we can work with these records, I think, more effectively and also bridge, you know, we can help each other with techniques and, and, and understand more about these kinds of things. Because people didn't stay in one place also. Right. They sold people right. from the islands across. They sold people from North America across the Caribbean, and they sold Native peoples from the Caribbean across North America in Europe. And they wind up in Asia as well because of because of when you think about the Spanish Empire, you got to include the Philippines as well. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so I mean, the reach of this is very is very broad, and um, and and so that's just to get back with Juan de la Rosa. You know, I'm not sure, but I found it really interesting that this man was able to escape, that he was able to time it. And I noticed you read carefully and you read what people are talking about. They say, well, they have to go, you know, the time of the moon. So I looked in an ephemeris, and sure enough, the time he split is when there was a full moon. There was a new moon. Oh, it was a full moon, and it was dry. So he would have a good chance of leaving. I didn't find anything saying that he had been found someplace else. It's possible that he survived and he, he lived somewhere else, you know. And went back to mm-hmm. Moca later. I wouldn't be surprised because I do know a De La Rosa family, ironically, in Moca, and they told me that wasn't their surname. They liked that surname and put the surname. Oh, that's interesting. So, <laughs> I know. So, who knows, you know? Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Well, I tell you what, we're going to take a quick break and come back and kind of delve into very specific records and uh, what we might find in those records, okay? So just a quick break. Okay.
Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, you have been listening to Dr. Ellen Fernandez-Sacco discuss Latino genealogy. And I must say, it's, it's quite complex. I mean, you do have to understand history. You do have to understand the people. And then you have to understand how those records were created and what's in those records. So, Ellen, mm-hmm. take us through, through records that you have found to be most helpful with your Latino genealogy, and we're going to just stop. I'm stopping and letting you talk, okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks so much, Bernice. Um, in terms of records, that's, of course, it's, um, there's family search and there's, there's ancestry in terms of digital repositories. Um, I'm not sure if people are uh, familiar with the uh, Archivo Digital Nacional de Puerto Rico, which is the, the National Digital Archives of Puerto Rico. Even though the um, the main archive in San Juan is really uh, uh, isn't going to be open until the fall, and we're also waiting to see what happens with uh, hurricane season in Puerto Rico, um, they they're still putting uh, resources out on there, which cover quite a few areas of Puerto Rico. Um, the Sociedad Puertorriqueña de Genealogia, uh, genealogiapr.org has um, uh, publishes quite a few books. Um, one volume, which is really a great volume, is um, the uh, third volume, which was uh, the contribution of African nations to the Puerto Rican family, uh, which is a really a large, beautiful volume with many, many miniature biographies. But the other thing is that there's so many more people to go. They also publish uh, collections on um, people migrated from the Canary Islands, from uh, the um, Balearic, from the you know Balearic Islands, from different areas of Puerto Rico, from different areas of Spain. There's the journal Hereditas. There is. They also have um, online. They have downloadable archives and transcriptions. Uh, you know, for for being a member. Um, there, uh, in terms of local history, uh, in '88 there was an effort to there was a publication per municipality. The 78 municipalities in Puerto Rico has 78 different books, which are not huge books, but books that were about 80 to 90 pages long that had a uh, capsule history of each municipality. So um, the, those books are very helpful, and some of those actually you can download. Uh, uh, as PDF, um, uh, let's see. Uh, Where can you download them from? 
Um, I think if you search uh, for Notas de su Historia, there's uh, a website that comes up. I think it's going to be uh, tied to the archives with the National Park Service in Puerto Rico. Okay. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not a direct link. I would say, like, search for Notas de su Historia. Um, there are more people blogging now about Puerto Rico than uh, when I started. Um, so that's something to look at. Um, PetePred.com, which is, uh, they have a small, uh, you have a small membership fee. I think it's like $15 a year. That's, they also have records that, that, you, that, that they transcribe that they make available to people that they can request. Uh, there's also Bodice, which is the uh, archives in the archives for uh, Spain, and there's several archives. There's several archival institutions that are come under that header. And um, I'm trying to think what other um, the book. Well, let's by talk Raquel. a little bit about the you know the Catholic Church records and the civil registers. Tell sure. us about those records. Sure. Well, the civil registers, one thing is if you learn about a little bit about the history of Catholic records in the Spanish Empire, you'll understand, once you understand that kind of structure, they're pretty much very similar in different places. They just start on different dates. So in Puerto Rico, they start in uh, 1885. So, uh, and then that doesn't, and they are, and the details contained in them vary over time. As the laws change, there's different information, and then it becomes a form, and then it becomes a very brief form. So uh, the cutoff date, I believe, uh, is about 1980s or 1990s, depending on the depending on the municipality you're looking at. Um, and uh, birth records will have a 1935 cutoff because the records were microfilmed in Puerto Rico in the 80s. Uh, the other thing is there was a problem in 2008, so access to Catholic Church records on Family Search was was kind of withheld for a lot uh, for a bit, but now uh, my understanding is that you can access them at a family uh, search, uh, a family history center, so that you can you can you can access the records there. They can't be accessed from home. There are some at home. Um, what's really interesting is that it's not comprehensive, but there is a lot there. So by searching just like with um, just any kind of basic genealogy, uh, you're, you know, with a timeline, with a location, and with collateral lines, you can, you can build out a tree uh, fairly quickly if you, you know, if, if you have some, some luck. But when we're looking at, you know, I want to get a little more specific with you. Uh, because sure, go ahead. Go ahead. you know we we know that you know there are parish records as you mentioned. I mean there's the Catholic records, but let's say we want to just look at baptismal records. Tell me mm-hmm. what will you find in those records? Because beyond that, we're talking marriage records. We I mean all the, the right, registered right. records. Well, I, I want you to be able to tell people just what you may find in those records that will help you. It's, it's going to depend on the time period, but what, often what you'll find in baptismal record is the name of the child, the name of the parents, the parents and the name of the, uh, the witnesses. 
you'll also have a date of baptism versus a date of birth, and both dates are in there. Uh, sometimes when you see some dates now, it's, it's a question mark as to which date people are actually citing. There was a tradition of, you know, people laying in for women laying in after birth a certain number of days. Or, or it wasn't like now where, you know, you get baptized fairly soon after a birth. There was a certain amount of time that people um, people kind of waited to register their, to, 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 to register birth. Um, the records would be really brief in the 18th century, and that 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 kind of that kind of continues. For baptisms, uh-huh. baptisms can also include. Will it also in, baptism records will also include records for enslaved persons as well, because the requirement, like with the reglamentos, for instance, was that within a three-year time period, whoever you brought in, you had to have them baptized. So in one okay. post that I have, um, I show examples of that, of that in there, and I had questions as to why is it that like six people are being, you know. Um, baptized at the same time and I couldn't figure out the age you know looking at the ages and then when I looked a little more it was it was because they were enslaved because of these rules and um and and also that belief that it would make them more uh controllable if you have them within the you know within the the, the Catholic church structure mhm mhm yeah so but, you know okay yeah, that's one structure. But let's say I'm looking for my Native American ancestral roots. I'm Taino. I want to know more. Is there a place? Well, you, well, it's really more a question of a lot of this is driven by, uh, I think, a question of mtDNA and then knowing because it's, a, it's also kind of a suppressed history. This is not okay. something that when I was growing up, we were we were taught continuously that, you know, the Spanish came and they killed all the Indians. And people like to, to, to bring up, like, the triracial, but, like, triracial is, like, you know, people from the past. And then when you learn more about the history, you realize that we're actually talking about something where people were being integrated and sometimes hidden in plain sight. And you wouldn't know from the name, but you know now from this, and there may be other you know other other uh, other information and other facts than you could you could add in there. Um, it was uh, for me personally. I mean, I didn't know this until I got my mtDNA results, and then I asked my aunt because my grandmother died when my mother was little, and my mother could never give me a description. And my aunt said, "Well, mommy at India," and and also then putting that in with everything else. So. There's also a cultural substrate in Puerto Rico that's really native. I mean, that everybody recognizes no matter what specific ethnicity we're talking about. You know, people can tell you how to cook on a phone, you know, the, the farming methods, um, you know, belief systems. I mean, it's, it's, it's still there. It's just, um, it's something I think that only now people are, are, are you know, kind of, Taking that as identity, going the whole way through. What's going uh-huh, to tell you uh-huh. is learning more about the network of people and and in your, in that community where where your where your family is from. That's what, that's that can that can start to inform you because there was no category. What they would do, even though on the World War One draft cards, there were about a thousand men with a social surname who declared themselves as Indio. 
So there was a consciousness there of people identifying enough with that to put it down. So um, you're saying that... it wasn't that, like an I mean, official it, category. Okay, okay. Because of the United you States, can't, once yeah. the United States came in, you only had three categories. You stuck with that also. You know, so you get another reinforcement mm-hmm. and a double down to not get specific on, you know, indigenous ethnicity, indigenous mm-hmm. culture or whatever. Yeah. Right, right. But what, what else do you feel people need to know about Latino genealogy? Help us understand, I mean, where are we going to go? I mean, you mentioned, you know, the Family History Center, and what's your thoughts about some of the databases um, on ancestry uh, and family search and, and other places? Well, I um, I guess I, I want to emphasize this kind of, like, um, connection that reaches out beyond these boundaries, because when I see where... People put, well, well, like where Puerto Rico gets classified in a library or, you know, off by itself or that it's separate, it's like, it's, 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 it's kind of like to surmount that, you know, that, that this, is, this is a history that can take you many places depending on, you know, who you've connected with. I mean, Puerto Rico is like a fifth. If you look at, like, who's, everybody's been there. It's like people from China, Poland, uh, you know, Central Europe. You have them from uh, Lebanon. You have them from other islands, South America, from Venezuela. I mean, every time you look at the history and it's, uh, you know, keep reading, keep getting a deeper sense of of the specificity of of some of the trajectory of where your ancestors have been. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, that's kind of what my, you know, not, and also to not, lose hope and also to have you know even if you have the most popular name I've got the second most popular surname uh, the Spanish surname you know you can still find things out about um, you can still you can still find things out you can still build out a tree you can still build a history and this doesn't have to be done alone and it shouldn't be done alone yes and since you mentioned names tell us about naming I mean, how are we going to dis- discover how those naming patterns take place? What about the surnames? I've seen maybe two or three surnames. So tell us about namings and what are we looking for and help us understand this. Okay. When you when you start to see a lot of names, that means the mm-hmm. family is pretty high up on the scale. Like I used to love to show Picasso's surname, which is like Picasso's first name and surname, like five Five or six names that you'll never fit into a form. But uh, mm-hmm. oh, we just go by one name. But um, people, even if they're, um, and it depends what time period. In the 18th century, the late 18th, early 19th century, Spain put a stop to people using surnames taken from grandparents, a different generation, and they ruled that you have to use your parents' names, um, for instance, because you had like, uh, Hernan said is uh, an explorer who had five children and those five children all have five different surnames that kind of thing so you trace these families can be traced back to these lines but it, it, it gives a lot of problems you have um, surnames that are nombres compuestos 
which means that they're two big families that got together and then they had that long surname. You have people with a single surname. A lot of times that's a clue as to whether you may have enslaved ancestors or ancestors who um, who were uh, coming out of, of agricultural labor, people, very um, humble people, because um, they didn't get married for whatever reason, which... Uh, which that also has another, you know, interesting history about how, how the Spanish church dealt with issues around that. Um, place names are also, you know, part of names, patronymic. So patronymic, toponymic. Uh, but when you see two surnames, it, it's often, you know, your paternal surname and your maternal surname. When the women married, this is more common before the U.S. took over Puerto Rico, but you kept your surname. You did not drop your surname. But your kids mm-hmm. then would get, like, you know, your, your, your husband's name and your, it would get each parent's name. And then, interesting. you know, then there's stories around that. You know, the youth, sometimes people will, you can also see traces of family, uh, family fighting or infighting or whatever when you see that, oh, look, nobody took the dad's the dad's name, but everybody took this, you know, the surname on that side. You know, so sometimes they also give you clues as well. Uh, if people married informally, they adopted their whole family and they would just changed their names, the whole family. That happened a lot in the 1910s, for instance, um, you know, which is you have a second marriage and every kid automatically got your name. And people, it wasn't maybe until later that people then go and change the records, records for that. Um, a personal favorite is the birth record that will have only a man who registered it and refuses to give the name of the mother. Um, those exist as well. <laughs> in the 19th century, you could see those in the civil registration. But once you exhaust all of the census records and you use the civil registration, when you have some of the registers uh, Slavos, and then you could also look at the um, slave owner's surname. Uh, people would uh, hold on to it, uh, and I think the pattern's a little bit different than, some, uh, than a lot of families in the American South. Some people, many people do drop the surname, but initially I think they did keep it, and that could have been almost like a, um, you know, almost like a flag for a group because you don't have, uh, slave ownership until later. That's on this. Uh, that's really. It, it's a lot of slave ownership. That's very small. So it's 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 a little different than what happened. What comes later in the century. So really, the timing is 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 your timeline is really going to determine what record sets you get into. Um, there are municipal okay. record sets also. I forgot to mention as well. Okay, so what is the most exciting thing that you have found in your research? The most exciting thing? Um, um, for me, I think when I did this uh, blog post and I found one woman on a list and I was able to connect her from different records that screw the census records and the civil registration and just kind of see the arc of the life. 
to become something different, to become something, to, to, you know, it's a, it's a, it was a journey of self-determination. And then has, yeah, has there been anything uh, you didn't know that was a surprise to you? Um, There have been many things. I think the biggest shock to me has been transcribing the 1860s volume, uh, the the certificate for enslaved people. Um, There's everything from infants just days old to um, elderly people, people who passed, people from Africa, uh, people that range in colors from white, literally described as white, with curly blonde hair and blue eyes, no father listed, no parents listed, interestingly enough, to uh, people with, um, you know, very, very dark skin, and um, but their parents are listed or their, you know, their, their children are listed on the certificate. So there was a lot more that uh, you could gain from these records than just, you know, like a hash mark on, a, on an inventory. And when you you said transcribing the 1860, I didn't catch what was that 1860. They're, they're what certificates. Was that? These are they're the uh, certificado de esclavos, which are they were microfilmed by the NARA and their family search, and the volume for the District Three is missing. Uh, so the you know the 1872 register de esclavos is on is on ancestry. So, so that keeps people from making connections because that there's no so that you have to work with the um, original certificates to then kind of reconstitute the missing volume. So I'm hoping that you know a lot more. Uh, I'm hoping that a lot of people will be able to make connections as a result. Right, right. So, um, is there anything else you feel we should know? that you haven't shared with us already? Um, I think that the, the other thing that, that's a tremendous that, that I've learned is seeing that in the end we're dealing with a system of structural racism and it, this thing has residues that we're still dealing with today. Um, for instance, Loisa, which begins with Greek communities, um, is, 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 is really um, in a very uh, high degree of African presence is, is dealing with like a 90% um, uh, unemployment rate after the hurricane and we're one of the last communities, you know, we're pretty low to get help assistance out there. So, I mean, these histories have a cost. And knowing these histories, I think, will raise awareness and I think can also help Keep people into today, um, and um, you know that. And, and I think there's a potential for healing, and there's a potential for a lot, a lot more uh, cooperation as as a, as a result. And I'm not uh, really. I'm not talking some kind of kumbaya thing. With with the healing, you mean? Yeah. But what yeah. what no, is the educational under- system doing to try to, you know, create that awareness about the records, about the culture, about the people? 
they, they, I think they've taken to trying to do that online in some ways. And right now there's a question mark even as to what's going to happen to the archives in Puerto Rico, what's going to happen to the university system. Uh, it's really alarming. Uh, you know, it's another phase of disaster capitalism. We have the University of Puerto Rico, which is, you know, that is, it's an esteemed and respected institution. What they're proposing to do is to turn it into a series of technical colleges for people to get a community college degree and just get rid of everything, basically. So that's really alarming. And uh, recovery for, for, for Puerto Rico, I mean, I'm just mentioning this because I don't know, Bernice, I don't know what the next step is going to be. And I think a lot of people don't know. And there's, uh, there's hope, but there's also a lot of desperation there. And I'm, I'm really hoping that things can improve. And I wanted also to give a shout-out to Teresa Omega because um, she also brings attention to these issues as well. And, uh, mm-hmm. you know, that's a black project. We, we, I think all of us believe that, you know, this intimate connection between the past and the present is one that we can't erase and we can't deny. Yes. Now, there's a question about what about Puerto Rican and DNA? Uh, well, I mean, there are a lot of groups. A lot of I think there's an there Puerto Ricans versus the group that I think tests the highest, one of the highest testing groups on ancestry, uh, because people have this question about their past. Uh, what you used to get in the past, what people would be um, uh, this conflation between nationality and ethnicity, where they would confuse mm-hmm. that because they were legally Spanish, that they were Spanish. But, you know, when you're in a colonial outpost, that doesn't work that way. Um, so when they look at their DNA, they can be pretty surprised and, um, and, then, and then have to, have to work with that. Um, and, then, and then it's the same thing, working back from yourself through, you know, your family or what you know about your family or if you're adopted and working with someone to help you connect that information so that then you can, you can find your, um, your ancestors, you can find your descendants, you can find your people today. Right, right. Well, we're cl- getting close to the end of the show. And uh, do you have any parting words uh, for the listeners? I just keep raising your ancestors into visibility. They're important stories out there, and um, they deserve to be heard. Certainly they deserve to be heard. Feel free to to contact me. If if you, you know, one of the things I want to do with my blog is just kind of show people that, you know, there are ways to to do this, to kind of share techniques and share uh, things to think about, you know, with this past, that it isn't really all that gone. Mm-hmm. It's still with mm-hmm. us. Your ancestors are still with us. They're still with us, absolutely. Well, thank you. I want to just thank you so much for coming on today. I hope that those who have been listening will just stimulate your interests and in searching for your Latino roots, understanding your Latino history, and understanding your communities so that you can also blog 
and come on Facebook, share on social media so that everyone can learn from you and your experiences as we have learned from you, Ellen. Uh, you know, I want everyone to, to remember that your ancestors left footprints, and you should follow those clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond, just as Ellen is blogging Latino Genealogy and Beyond. It's, it's, it's broad. It's a lot to, uh, to look for. So you can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and Beyond and Afrogenius Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the National to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton Raji, and also watch for the Black Pro Gen Live with host Nicosul Smith. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio, and I look forward to you joining me next week. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Have a great day, everyone. <laughs>